I'm Joitha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. There has been a lot of discussion about disability representation on screen. The portrayals of disabled people can often be inaccurate or reliant on stereotypes. More recently, we have even heard growing discontent with able-bodied actors playing people with disabilities on screen and calls that characters with disabilities should be played by real people with disabilities are growing louder. What seems to, as yet anyway, be a footnote in these conversations is a discussion about disability representation behind the camera. This is an important exclusion. The absence of people with disabilities behind the camera is a fundamental exclusion, which restricts what stories we tell and how we go about telling them. Today, we discuss disability and filmmaking. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta, joining you from Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. Today my hair is pulled back in a ponytail and I have my black headphones and I'm wearing a uh, a teal shirt, which has an interesting neck. It's sort of a V-neck, uh, but the fabric is sort of folded over. I'm doing an absolutely terrible job of describing this, but the fabric is sort of folded over uh, so that it's in, in almost in layers, uh, folded one on top of the other. I, I, I should not be describing things for a living. Okay, I'm going to leave it there before I dig myself in any further. I am really delighted to welcome Nasreen Al-Khadib to the program. She is a really talented filmmaker. Nasreen Al-Khadib is an award-winning filmmaker whose work illuminates historically excluded voices. As a director of photography, Nasreen has lensed Kamala Harris's successful vice presidential campaign, Oprah's Emmy award-winning series, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, The First Disabled Astronauts, that was the Astro Access project that we actually talked about on The Pulse, and The Black Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. She executive produced East of the River, that was supported by the Tribeca Film Festival, and she directed campaigns for NASA and the Women's March, in addition to lensing scripted films centering gay and disabled lead characters. Nasreen has a really impressive resume, and again, I am so delighted to welcome Nasreen to the program. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jarita. I really appreciate you making this space um, for us to have this conversation. Now, you said some very kind things about uh, my descriptive abilities, so let me give you an opportunity to describe what you have on today. We love talking fashion, right? So... Um, well, I, yeah, I, of course. Um, my name is Nestrine Alkatib. I use the pronoun she, her, and hers. Uh, I uh, live on unceded Tongva land. Um, I have seven identities and six disabilities. Uh, I am multi-heritage. I'm both Black and Iraqi. I work as a cinematographer and director in film and television. Um, I am sitting on a, uh, a chair that has uh, a, a tall wooden back. Um, I am wearing... Uh, a army green jacket with a uh, charcoal shirt underneath, and my hair is pulled up right now. That's great. Uh, th- that color looks really nice, the army green. I think it suits just about everybody. Uh, Nasreen, let me ask you about how you got into filmmaking. What attracts you to filmmaking? Within filmmaking, there's an opportunity to build a world that you may not necessarily have access to. Um, 
by building those worlds and sharing it uh, with audiences you may never meet in person, you probably won't ever meet in person, um, it brings the opportunity to shift our culture to, to be more inclusive, to have more empathy for people that walk in different shoes than you or don't walk at all. How would you say, because you did such you did such a good job of describing your heritage and your multiple identities, how does all of that shape your journey and your practice as a filmmaker? Being raised with so many identities um, and having to find the normal in that, um, it means I approach subjects and I approach stories um, and 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 the projects that I work on without predetermined conceptions. Um, so often I was looked at a certain way, my family was looked at a certain way, and it um, it limited what opportunities I had. It limited who I could interact with and, and what teams I was chosen for. Um, so having that experience, knowing there's so much I don't know about someone's personal experience, especially if they come from a certain identity, I'm, I still may not, not know who they are, what they come, what, you know, what world they come from, what experiences they've had. So honestly, all of the identities that I've been raised with have, has given me a really distinct um, lesson of shut up and listen. You have no idea what the story is about yet. Make sure you pick up all the rocks and look under all of them in order to help tell this story accurately. At what point in your life did you start to self-identify as disabled? So in 2018, I was uh, struck by a hit and run in a parking lot. And um, that that moment took away my ability to walk. Um, and, I, and I didn't walk again for about a year and a half. Um, and it changed the way I interact with my home. It changed the way I interacted with transportation, um, how I was able to, you know, function as a filmmaker on set. Uh, it changed everything. Um, and I started to, I started to get more immersed in the disability community and start to realize um, how incredibly one-sided everything is designed. Um, I come from an art background, so when I look at a room or I look at a, a tool, I think about all the different ways to use it. But often these tools, these spaces are not designed for everyone. They're only designed for 70% of people um, or less. Um, and that became more apparent when I became physically disabled and couldn't walk. Um, just going up and down stairs um, on my knees um, multiple times a day made me, you know, exhausted. And then I, it, it was like a trickle effect. It was like a ripple effect. I, um, I couldn't visit certain buildings that, that, that didn't have arm rails because I wasn't, I wasn't steady. Um, I wasn't w willing to take that risk going up a pair of stairs and then potentially breaking another bone. Um, so there was a lot of pre-planning that had to go into, I have to, basically reach out and find out if me, my body, is not only safe in these spaces, but welcomed. And if I'm not welcomed, do I really need to be there? I want to ask you about being a filmmaker. You were a filmmaker before your accident, and when the accident happened, and you've alluded to this, how you went about 
being a film filmmaker changed significantly. What was that change like for you? As a filmmaker, I spend the most amount of my time in pre-production. Um, but as a disabled filmmaker, I spend gargantuan amount of time in pre-production because now I have to put the sweat equity into helping my producers who may not be disabled understand um, what to ask for and how to make space for disability on set because inevitably there's going to be people with disabilities. There may even be people with disabilities who ignored their needs in order to fit into that system that is so very exclusive. Um, so there's sort of like this learning period, um, this teaching period, and um, just the intention behind does everyone who is present on set, do all of those bodies have what they need to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish in the day? It's a very simple concept, um, but there are, but there definitely is a learning curve when, um, when it's bluntly put, we're making space for everyone, not just the select few. Earlier on, you used the term sweat equity. What does that mean? To put sweat equity in, um, to me, sweat equity means you're often doing an unpaid job and you're doing it for, um, behind the inten intention of um, this will become something that will help the person receiving the information become normalized so that the next person um, behind me has a producer who now asks them, hey, what are the tools that you need on set so that we can make your day possible? Um, so the sweat equity I'm putting in may not necessarily benefit me. It may benefit me. Um, but it will benefit other people um, after uh, because now this producer, this line producer, or um, this executive producer now has this concept of I wasn't thinking about the entire day um, and, and what it means for someone to have a tool on set for them to accomplish what they need in the day. Um, you know, everyone has tools. We just need to expand what that definition is. Nasreen, how has your accident and your self-identification as a person with a disability evolved your practice as a filmmaker in other ways? I'm thinking specifically about how you've changed the kinds of stories you're telling and the subjects you're choosing to talk about. After I became disabled in 2018, um, it was apparent that every project that I take on will either help the identities that I occupy or hurt them. Um, so showing up with my identities front and center um, and being very transparent about who I am and what experiences I come from and what identities I come from attracts collaborators to me who want to help tell those stories. And having the opportunity to tell those stories means creating a more inclusive environment so that people with my identities are less feared. Um, the word disabled, even people within my family, even friends, this word makes them very uncomfortable. Um, we were taught to be uncomfortable around that word. Um, around my white peers growing up, the word Muslim and Islam made them very uncomfortable. Um, around my Arab family, the word black and African-American made them very uncomfortable. So there was always like identities that I occupied. This is not my choice. This is who I am. This is who 
this is innately what my biology is. There's no like, um, there's no amount of watering that down. Um, and I, and, and, and I don't, you know, um, to speak plainly, um, I was raised to fit into the pre-existing structure and that pre-existing structure is based off a white supremacist colonization um, of black and brown people. Um, speaking a certain way, doing your hair a certain way, dressing a certain way, not using certain adjectives, um, not speaking about certain holidays. I mean, I was raised to try and um, make sure that I could get those jobs and find those resources. Um, and as an adult now who's disabled and, 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 and proud to say it, um, I'm showing up saying, no, all these things are not necessarily popular to say or identify with, but this is who I am. And I want to work with people who are proud to work with someone like that, who want to work with someone like that. Um, so yes, it excludes me from a number of projects, but it also opens up a whole world of projects that I want to invest my time in. We have, you know, I have a very limited amount of time here left. What I want to do with that is make work that actually has an impact, that makes space for people like me, that makes space for people who are not like me, but who are also marginalized or um, othered in some way. You use the word uncomfortable and discomfort a lot in the last few minutes. And I want to pick up on that idea of discomfort. We think of discomfort as a bad thing. As a filmmaker, when you put something out there into the world, do you think that if audiences are left feeling uncomfortable or if they feel a degree of discomfort by seeing gay, disabled, black, Muslim characters on screen, that that is a bad thing? Or is that really something that you would aspire for as a filmmaker to get people to feel a little uncomfortable so they start to question the status quo? I mean, technically, if someone's already watching a documentary or already watching a film about a gay, Muslim, disabled character, there's some, you know, there's some percentage of them that's open to feeling that discomfort. Um, but I mean, I don't know how you were raised. I was raised to not make people feel uncomfortable, make them feel as comfortable as possible. Um, but as you, as you age and you, and you become, you know, your, your brain evolves, you understand that there's some opportunities in those, in those uncomfortable times because something is happening internally, right? Something is happening with your emotions and your mind that are not congruent. Um, they're clashing and that discomfort is coming from that clash, which I think is a positive thing. Um, of course, I think, you know, I think there's, um, I think there is opportunities for people to grow, um, their mental capabilities and their, and their empathy, um, when that discomfort arises. Um, the question is how many people are putting themselves in those situations versus how many people are avoiding that situation completely? It's the people we're not getting to. That's the question. When we started talking, just, you know, as you, you joined us on Riverside, which is our platform where we record things, uh, you said to me, and I thought it was such a beautiful quote, uh, you said to me uh, that it's past the point where we stop being polite about disability. What did you mean by that? 
I have the great fortune and the privilege of being around disabled activists um, and disabled artists who are uh, who are taking up space in the public eye um, in a very forward way. Um, and what I'm hearing from a lot of them and, and how I feel personally is that we are past the point of being polite. I think it's been that way for a long time. I don't think this is new. I think it's just starting to get some traction um, publicly speaking um, in the media. And what I mean when I say um, we don't have that, you know, we don't have that space to be polite anymore. It means um, what we've done in the past and how people have treated disabled people in the past has not worked. It doesn't work. It's not working now. Um, actively speaking, um, it doesn't work and it's not inclusive. And, 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 and I can say firsthand that I was part of the problem because it wasn't until I was disabled outwardly, physically, um, in a very um, severe way that I realized I was also part of a system and I was not making an, I wasn't, I wasn't creating any waves. Um, I was trying to fit into the pre-existing structures that were not designed for me. Um, and as a disabled person, trying to fit into those structures is actually detrimental to me. It's not just de detrimental to my, to my health. It's also detrimental to my job um, because it's giving misinformation. Um, so the more vocal we are, the more direct we are about things that work versus don't work, it actually doesn't just benefit the disabled folks who are in the room, the at least 25% of people in the room of 100 people. Um, it also, we've seen time and time again throughout history, um, disabled people who invent new systems and new ways of working benefit people who are not disabled. Um, the phone, texting, uh, curb cuts, all of those were invented for and by disabled people. Tell me you haven't used those at least 50 times today you have if you're hearing this chances are you have um, and chances are the inventions we'll be inventing in the future you'll also be using so make some space for us um, the 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 activist Chris Hill said to me once you know there there are two groups of people in the world there are disabled people and there are people who will be disabled um, and I think that's a very accurate statement. I think that our, 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 our procedures, our structures aren't designed for that because there's some strange cultural shame around being disabled. Um, but I think we're evolving slowly towards a more inclusive way of living. Speaking of being more inclusive, you've alluded to the fact that many people with disabilities and indeed people from marginalized communities overall maybe have not had the best experience with the media, uh, with their portrayals on TV and in film. Given that you occupy these multiple hyphenated identities, how do you go about making a space safe and welcoming for subjects with disabilities, knowing that they may have 
deep misconceptions, maybe even fear about being in front of a camera and telling their stories or sharing their stories? When I'm approaching a story, um, I'm doing a lot of listening. Um, I'm, I, I feel like a sponge. Um, I'm just learning um, and uncovering as much information as possible uh, because whoever the story is about, this is their story. Um, I'm not imprinting any of my preconceived notions on it. What I'm doing is helping the person that the story is about to tell it the most authentic and the most accurate way possible. Um, and sometimes that means um, making sure that their comfort level is at a place where they can access those emotions and they can access that information. Um, sometimes, you know, being a filmmaker, it's not always like using specific tools to obtain specific results. Um, sometimes it's just like turning a temperature down, making sure someone's body is physically more comfortable so that they are less stressed and can access memories that aren't necessarily at the top of their brain. Um, so it has a lot to do with each subject being different. And, you know, my ADHD brain loves that. I get to, I get to learn, you know, I get to be a student, um, with each project that I'm a part of, but also I get to bring all of my identities and make sure that the space carved out for that person, for those, for that group of people, um, is as safe, is as safe as possible, is as, um, is as, as comfortable as possible so that they know that the story that they're helping to tell is important. Um, it's important to me and it's, it's going to be important to the audience who's going to receive it. What advice would you give to someone else in your position who might be uh, a disabled filmmaker or a filmmaker from another marginalized group? What is the best path forward for them? You cannot do the work alone. You have to you have to have collaborators. Um, that's what makes storytelling so successful. Um, that's what makes film and television um, so impactful. When multiple minds, when multiple creative minds come together to create something that is um, evergreen, um, that actually shifts our culture in some way, um, you're doing that with collaborators who share the same values that you do. Um, and in order to find those those other filmmakers that share those values, you're going to go through a ton of rejections. And those rejections are never going to stop. Um, it doesn't matter how successful you become or how unsuccessful you become. The rejections are going to be plentiful. Um, last week, I got three rejections. Sorry. Last week, I got three rejections in one day. Um, and those were, those were um, you know, those were applications that I had put in a, a year prior, six months prior, three months prior. Um, and they all came on the same day. And I have to find some sort of success in that. Um, but I also have to, to know that it, those things were not supposed to happen. Um, and each rejection leads to, it leads you that much closer to the success. So each no that you get leads you that much closer to the yes. So you have to go through them. Um, don't, don't take it personally, just rack it up the same way. Like a girl scout racks up patches on a belt, <laughs> <laughs> let it motivate you. Um, because those collaborators, when you find them are invaluable, 
um, and you will keep them for your entire life. Nasreen, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I wish we had longer to talk, but unfortunately, we are all out of time. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much. Um, This was a pleasure to chat with you. Um, And I look forward to hearing more from your show later. Nasreen Al-Khatib is a filmmaker and cinematographer, and it was a pleasure speaking to her today. Unfortunately, as I said to Nasreen, that's all the time we have today. If you have any feedback, you can uh, send us an email, feedback at ami.ca. You can give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave uh, permission to play the voicemail on the program. You can also find us on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can also still find me on Twitter at Joetha Gupta. Ted Cooper has been our videographer today. Mark Aflalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI Podcasts. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. And I've been your host, Joetha Gupta. Thanks for listening.